So we are in 1 Kings 17. And probably most of you are old enough to remember the events I'm going to tell you about, although you may have forgotten some of the details. But in April of 1986, there was an explosion at the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, which was a city in Ukraine in the former Soviet Union. And when it happened, it was devastating. It's the biggest nuclear disaster by orders of magnitude over anything that's ever happened anywhere else. But the Soviet government downplayed it initially. In fact, for the first day and a half, they said nothing. People in Chernobyl just went about their business. They saw there was a fire at the nuclear plant, but they thought, thought to themselves, well, it must not be serious because nobody's doing anything. So it was a day and a half before they even started evacuating people in that town. People going about their business, taking their kids to school, going to the grocery store, breathing in this toxic air. They didn't say anything to the world at all. They didn't want the myth of, of Soviet uh, efficiency to be punctured, so to speak. And so do you know how the world first found out about the Chernobyl disaster? This is true. In Sweden, thousands of miles away, in Sweden, nuclear scientists and workers were going into a power plant there and they were having to be tested to see what their radiation levels were and all of them were spiking. And they couldn't figure out why because there wasn't any kind of leak in their power plant, in their nuclear plant, and they finally traced it thousands of miles away to Chernobyl. Who knows, Soviet Union may never have let the world know at all if not for them. And I tell you that story, it's ancient history of course, but we live in a world today where the air around us is polluted with human sin. That's, that's one way of picturing the fall of man that's recorded in Genesis 3. From that time forward, when sin entered the world, that's when death entered the world, that's when natural disasters, that's when war, that's when uh, hatred, that's when division, when every bad thing about human life today entered into the world on that day. And you might say that, that the world goes about its business pretending that everything's fine. And anytime a person who trusts in the scripture stands up and says, well, this isn't right, this particular value or this particular uh, moral vision of the world is not correct and is harmful, they're immediately shouted down. They're said, oh, you're crazy, you're just a bigot, you're just a fanatic. And yet, we're killing ourselves. We're dying slowly. That's the human condition. That's why we need salvation. And you might say, to, to take that further, heaven is a world that's rid of all the poison. And back to when we can breathe freely and, and live eternally in the presence of God. But I say all that to say this. In the Old Testament, if you, if you use that whole model, that whole idea of the world being a place that's with toxic air and no one can see it, the prophets are the ones who could smell the poison. That's what a prophet was. A prophet was a person, everybody else just going about their business and, and breathing in toxic air, and the prophets are running around going, stop it, you need to get, we're, we're, we're all going to die, we need to change, we need to... And no wonder people treated them the way they treated them. Well, my favorite prophet, for what it's worth, is Elijah. And we're about to start on the life of Elijah. I love Elijah because he's everything I'm not and wish I was, right? Now, I don't wish I was everything Elijah was. Elijah uh, wore a garment of hair and, and lived 
a very solitary life, and I don't know that he ever laughed once, so he's never mentioned as being happy in the scriptures, but, but his boldness, his courage, his incredible faith. We're going to start today looking at the life of Elijah. Now, to, to backtrack a little bit, to remind you where we are, last week we saw that the nation of Israel had fractured, and the kingdom of Judah, which was ruled by the sons of David, it was just a, a tiny little sliver that was left over, just a little bitty uh, uh, province. It was his own nation, but just a, a, a tiny portion of land wrapped around Jerusalem in the south. The rest of it, the 10 tribes of the north, became Israel. And they were ruled by people who weren't descended from David. Their original king, Jeroboam, had a covenant with God, but he never followed it. And so there was never a good king of Israel after the split. You can read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you can read First and Second Chronicles, and there was never a king of Israel after the split that the, the Bible calls righteous. The king we're going to look at tonight was a man named Ahab. You've probably heard of him and not the one who was hunting a white whale somewhere. Uh, Ahab, in one sense, you can see where if you'd lived in Israel back then and you hadn't been a believer in Yahweh, you might have thought, well, he's a really good king. He's, he's getting it done. He's built a new king, a, a new capital. We now have this new capital called Samaria, and it's better than the old one. Uh, he's made an alliance with the kingdom of Sidon, which is present-day Lebanon, because he married the king's daughter, and so now they're not mad at us anymore. And, and now the Syrians who keep uh, encroaching on our territory, he's sending armies to fight them. Boy, he's doing everything we want a king to do. And yet, 1 Kings 16.30, which we won't read, I'll read it to you. It says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, which every one of the kings of Israel has that report. But then it says, more than all who were before him. Now, that's not something you want to hear spoken by the Lord. So what was so evil about Ahab? Well, first, that daughter of the king of Sidon, you may have heard of her. Her name was Jezebel. Yes. By the way, the name of the king of Sidon was Ethbaal. Ethbaal is, in literal language, it means Baal is God. Jezebel was the most fanatical Baal believer I think anybody had ever seen, and she was the queen. So it was her life goal to exterminate all belief in Yahweh and Israel and convert them completely to Baal worship. They were already worshiping him. They had already brought him in. You can blame Solomon for that. But she wanted to make them a Baal-worshipping nation exclusively. So one of the things she did was she rounded up the prophets of God in the northern kingdom and had them put to death. And she built a, a, a temple to Baal in Samaria, and she just tried to root out any, any Yahweh worshipers in the land and, and exterminate them or convert them. So imagine you're an Israelite, and you're a worshiper of God, but all of your neighbors are worshiping this God Baal. And some of them are doing better than you. Maybe their crop yield is better than yours is. Maybe their, their donkey or their ox looks healthier than yours. Maybe their wife is having more babies than your wife is having. And, and you say to yourself, well, you know, this Baal worship seems to be working out. And by the way, the, the, the queen sure is insistent, and I don't want to get run afoul of her. So it looked very dark for the worship of God in the land of Israel. So he sends this man, Elijah. And that's where we begin in verse 1. 1 Kings 17. 
Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So that's the beginning. Uh, and by the way, just for geography's sake, Gilead is where the, the province that, that uh, Elijah's from, that's in present-day Jordan. That's on the other side of the river from present-day Israel. But back then it was Israelite territory. Um, God brings this prophet to Israel and he starts running around saying, there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be a drop of rain. There's not even going to be dew on the ground. Now, why a drought? Okay, I learned this recently, and I love to, I love to share things I've learned uh, so, so you can think I'm smart. But um, Baal, which I've heard of in my whole life, because I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard this until recently. Baal was the storm god. So he was the one who brought the rain. In that part of the world, there are rainy seasons and there are dry seasons, like so many other parts of the world. And so the, the Canaanites believed that when it was dry, when they, when, there was in, when they were in the dry season, Baal was dead. And so he needed to be resurrected so that the rains would come. And so you can imagine during the dry periods, they'd think, well, you know, this is that time of year when Baal dies again, and, and it's just the way it's going to be. But okay, it's getting time to plant the crops. Let's go to the temple. Let's offer our sacrifices. Let's go through those, those pagan rituals because we need to wake Baal up. We need to get him out of the ground. We need to resurrect him so he can go back to work and provide us with the rains we need to survive. By creating a drought that lasted three and a half years, by the way, what God was saying to the people of the land was, Baal's not real. You can't resurrect him. I'm the real God. He can't bring you the rain. It'll rain when I say so, not when Baal says so. God was showing the people who was the one true God. Keep that in mind. Now, verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So it's an interesting strategy. You would think that if Elijah's the one voice of God, we find out later he's not the only prophet left, but he thinks he is. If, prophet, if Elijah is the one voice speaking for God in the whole land of Israel, you would think that God would say, okay, go from town to town, go from house to house, whatever you have to do to get the message across. Instead, he says, go and hide in a gully near where you grew up. Go hide in what they call them wadis in that part of the world, but we call them a gully, this part of the world. Uh, this little tributary of the Jordan, just hide there. I'll take care of you. Now, what's God up to? First of all, he knows if Jezebel gets her hands on Elijah, he's dead. But secondly, God is going, over the next few years, is going to ask Elijah, command Elijah, because God doesn't actually ask, to do some things that he doesn't ask of many people in the history of the world. To take some risks that, Lord willing, none of us will ever have to take. Elijah is going to need some exceptional faith. So I think what you see in, in, in 1 Kings 17 is God putting mm -hmm. Elijah through the school of faith building up his faith, getting him ready for the battle that we're going to see next week. 
And, and the first two things he does is he executes the drought, this three and a half year drought. Elijah goes out and preaches and it happens. Three and a half years, no rain, no dew, nothing. But secondly, these ravens come and they, they land with bread and meat for, for Elijah to eat. Now, that's a, that's a pretty amazing miracle. A drought you can explain away and say, droughts happen. Maybe I just got lucky. But for birds that aren't trained to just show up bringing you steak sandwiches in the morning and the evening, right? That's, that's pretty remarkable. That's got to build up his faith. But look what happens next. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So you can imagine being Elijah, and granted, he's all by himself, but temperamentally, it doesn't seem to me that Elijah is a guy who wants to be around a lot of people. He's just, he's, he's fine on his own, but he's got, he's got cool brook water to drink out of. He's got food that's being, you know, the, the birdie Uber is bringing him food every day. And now all of a sudden, all that's over. And God says, I want you to go not to Israel, but to Zarephath. Zarephath is in Sidon. Sidon is where Jezebel's from. So he's going back to Jezebel's hometown or homeland, not to any of the cities of the Israelites. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Elijah does it. If he has doubts, they're not recorded here. All right, I'm skipping ahead to verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now just pause there for a moment. We don't know if what she's saying is, after this, we're going to starve, or if she's saying, after this, we're going to kill ourselves. I don't know. Either way, if I were in Elijah's shoes, my thought would be, God, why did you send me to a widow who has nothing? When you said you were going to send me to a widow in a whole other country, I just assumed she was a widow who owned a steakhouse, right? Or, you know, that could provide for me. Again, God is building up. Elijah's faith. And that doesn't always mean making things easy. In fact, it often means the opposite. So uh, I think I left you in verse 13. Let's go look at verse 14. Now, verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. What's remarkable about the story besides God's miracle, which we can expect because he's God, what's remarkable is this woman believes Elijah. She's not a believer in Yahweh, at least not initially. She's a pagan. She lives in a pagan land. 
And this stranger, this hairy stranger shows up and says, I know that's your last meal. Give it to me first and you won't run out of food. What it shows me is either she's just so desperate, she figures, why not? I mean, I might as well. Or she's heard of the God of Israel and says, I'm going to give him a shot. Either way, she takes this leap of faith and look what happens. And, and think about the progression of the miracles. Again, a, a drought is pretty uh, effective. It's, it's an amazing thing God's able to do, but not as impressive as sending food by birds to a man uh, drinking out of a brook. And, and that's not nearly as impressive as a woman whose jar of oil and jar of flour refuse to run out. And, and, and I, I also want to point out, we read this and we think how miraculous, how wonderful, but none of this is easy for Elijah. This is a difficult time because not only is he having to exercise this extreme faith, he knows that his homeland is dying, literally starving, drying up and starving, and he is the most hated man in his country. So God has not put Elijah in an easy position. All of us have an easier life than Elijah does right now. So things are about to get really dark, though, because in verse 17, it says, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring... Come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. By the way, just side note, when I was a kid and I heard this story again and again and again, like many of you, I always pictured an old woman because that's what I thought a widow was, right? I just assumed. But this is a woman with a young son, a son young enough she can hold him in her arms. So this is probably a young woman. This is, you know, maybe 20s or 30s. Not that that makes a difference. It just helps to picture in your mind, uh, envision what's going on. Um, all right. He says, he laid him on his own bed, verse 20. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So remember, God's purpose in all of this is to show the world and to show Israel especially that Baal isn't real and that he is. So Baal can't resurrect himself to bring rain upon the land, but God can raise the dead anytime he chooses. See what God's just done. This is the most powerful miracle of all, of all the four miracles we see in this story. That's the biggest one. And after this one, we know Elijah's ready to take on Ahab and Jezebel, and we'll get to that next week. I also want to point out, though, look at, this, look at the, uh, the journey this woman goes on, the journey of faith. This had to be impressive to her that her jar of oil and her jar of flour couldn't wear out, but it's not until 
she sees her son come back from the dead that she realizes, oh, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What you say about your God is the truth. And what I've been taught my whole life is not. Because when her son first dies, what does she say? God sent you to me to punish me for my sins. That's what she's been told a God does. When we displease him, he zaps us. He takes our children. He destroys everything. Even Elijah shows a little bit of doubt when he says, God, have you brought me here to see her son die? But God says, I'm the one that brings life. I'm the one that brings back from the dead. And this is what he does in this woman's heart and what he can do in the heart of every lost person you know. Now, I, one of the interesting things about this story is Jesus mentions this story when he goes home to Nazareth to preach in his hometown synagogue. Now, I, pre, I pastored the church I grew up in. I've, I, when I, during that period of time, I often thought about this story. Uh, Jesus saying, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And I said, well, I'm not a prophet, I'm a pastor. So that's the way I explained it. But there is something awkward about preaching to the people who once changed your diaper, right? The people who watched you grow up and saw your silliness when you were a kid. And now you're trying to preach the word of God to them. Jesus is there in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, I've come to fulfill these words. And at first everybody, oh, just that's so impressive. Oh, we're so proud of our, our hometown boy who's made good. But then they get offended at him. And you know what he says? He says, this doesn't surprise me. Because you remember when the land had drought for three and a half years, God didn't send Elijah to any of the widows of the land. He sent him to a widow in Zarephath. A pagan, a pagan in a pagan land. What is Jesus saying? Because they get offended. They try to kill him at that point. What is Jesus saying that makes them so angry? He's saying, during that drought, nobody called on the name of the Lord. If they would have, God would have sent Elijah to them. In the same way, I have now come. I am God in human flesh. I am in your presence and you're rejecting me too. For them, that was, that was too far. That was claiming too much. And that's why they tried to put him to death. Had to be one of those heartbreaking days of the Lord's life. But that's, that's where that story ties in to the New Testament. Now, what does this mean to us? I want to get, leave you with three uh, application points. Number one, a big reason, I believe, a big reason for our frequent dissatisfaction in life is that we want to be happy. Of course we do. For us, happiness means we remove all the painful stuff and we get the things we want. That's what happiness means, right? You're always, you're always happier when you're, you're eating ice cream than when you're eating vegetables. You're, you're always happier when you're on vacation than when you're at work. You're, that's just logical. And it's not as though God doesn't care about our happiness. In fact, everything in your life that makes you happy, He gave you. So yes, God wants you to be happy. But his goal is not your happiness. His goal is your holiness. His goal is that you become like him. And that leads to the second point. A large part of holiness is developing strong faith. And by strong faith, I don't just mean I believe the words of the Bible, or I believe the Baptist faith and message, or I believe the Nicene Creed or whatever, Orthodox uh, doctrine. It means I have absolute trust in God's wisdom and his power and his love, even when life isn't going my way. That's what faith is. 
That's what faith is. My, my favorite story about faith is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My favorite part of that story is not when the, the, the angel or Jesus, depending on what you believe, rescues them from the fiery furnace. My favorite part of the story is before that, when they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, we know that the Lord is able to save us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we still will not bow before your idol. You hear what they're saying? See, today, what's commonly preached is real faith is knowing God's going to give you what you ask for. That's baloney. That is absolutely unbiblical. God doesn't work for you. He doesn't work for me. Real faith is saying, God, I have laid before you everything I need. I know you're able to give me every bit of it. If you choose not to, I'm still going to follow you. Lord, I, I offer you uh, my, my fractured marriage. I offer you my, my failing health. I offer you my f- terrible finances. I offer you my, all my difficulties. And I want you to fix it all. But if you don't, I'm still going to trust you. Because you've proven. You've proven you know better than I do. You've proven you love me more. So I'm going to trust you. And, and faith is becoming holy. I mean, that's how you become holy is by developing that faith. And guess what? I really wish this wasn't the case. I really wish I could tell you different. You don't get that simply by studying the Bible and going to church and praying. I wish you could develop strong faith by nothing but spiritual disciplines alone. I really do. Those are important. You can't do without them. But you can't develop strong faith without suffering, without hardship. That's when you really grow. I wish it wasn't so, but in this life, that is the way it goes. So that leads to number three. If God never allowed anything bad to happen to us, we would never grow in faith. I I, I liken it to parenting. All of you who've been parents know if your goal in life is to remove all obstacles from your children, from their path, if it's to make sure they never experience any negative circumstance or any sadness or any fear uh, or any difficulties, you're going to fail as a parent. First of all, you can't do what you're trying to do. And second of all, your attempts will just cripple them. There are decisions you make as a parent where you say, my kid hates school, but he's got to go. My, my son doesn't want to brush his teeth. He's got to brush his teeth. My, my daughter needs this shot to get well, and she's terrified of needles. I'm going to have to hold her down so the doctor can stick her with that needle. That's one of the hardest things you ever do as a parent. But you do these things not because you hate your child, but because you love them. And this is the choice God makes when he allows us to go through suffering. Now, hear me. I do not believe this. I'm just sharing you with my the- sharing with you my theology. I do not believe every bad thing happens for the purpose of growing us. I think a lot of the bad stuff we experience is just part of living in a broken world. And some of it, some of the bad stuff that happens to us is because we're dumb and we make bad decisions. And some of it is a direct uh, punishment from God or a circumstance he leads us into for a purpose. But all of it, all of it, God is able to work into his plan. Even the mistakes we make, even the suffering we bring upon ourselves, he's able to say, I'm going to redeem that. So that someday when you stand in my presence, you'll look back and say, I'm not happy that I sinned, 
but I sure am glad you allowed me to go through that time afterwards because of what you brought about in my life. I know it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. A lump of coal doesn't become a diamond without pressure. You don't just put it under glass on your doorstep, or on, your, uh, on your kitchen countertop and then expect a diamond. It has to go through pressure and that's the truth for us too. Um, so let me put it another way. All of you ladies who are mothers, um, I've been told, and, and from what I can tell it's true, that uh, childbirth is the most painful thing any human ever goes through. And yet, I know women who go through it more than once. Why is that? I'm sure there are women who, who just have one and stop, but most women I know go through it more than once. You know what they say, right? If, if the men were the ones that had the babies, there would be no babies. And so I said that once and somebody said, no, there'd be one. Because one guy would say, let's just try this out. And the other guys would watch it and go, okay, I'm out. That's not, that's not for me. But, but women keep doing this. They keep having children. Why? Because of what comes out of it. And, and beyond childbirth, anybody who's raised a child knows it's the hardest job you ever have. And it, it worries you. It keeps you up at night. They break your heart. Uh, they disappoint you. They cost you tons of money. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons not to have children. We keep having them. And, and my point is, that all this pain, we can manage it because of what it produces. That's, that's the picture of a woman in labor is there's a difference between a woman who's giving birth and a guy who's broken his legs because he was driving too fast. That guy's over there moaning and, and crying and in terrible pain and there's nothing good that comes out of it. But that woman, she's in terrible pain, but she has hope because it's producing something beautiful. And I've never known a woman, not once, maybe if, if you're that woman, don't tell me, but uh, who said, eh, that was a mistake. I, I wish I hadn't done that. No, that's, again, they keep doing it over and over again because of what it produces. So that's how we can look at the painful circumstances in our lives. Here's the challenge, and some of you are going through those times right now. What the enemy wants to do in those moments is convince you that now's the time to turn away. Don't read your Bible. Don't pray. By all means, don't go to church. I've had Christians tell me, well, I would come to church, but if I did, I'd just sit there and cry because of what I'm going through. And I, I want to say that that's great. You know, we need to know you're suffering. We need to see you cry, so we'll pray for you. If you lean on God during those times, you can make the choice to lean on God during those times like you never have before. If you pray and your prayers are way more focused than they used to be when you were just saying, you know, Lord bless the missionaries. If you, if you really search God's word for some sign of hope, some answer, some message. If you come to church and you, you open up your life and you say, weep alongside with me, carry me through this. You can look back on those droughts in your life as times that were painful, times that you never want to go through again, but times that birthed the most beautiful things about you. And I do believe, I do believe what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the sufferings of this world are, are producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. That someday when we stand in the presence of Jesus, we'll thank him even for those droughts and what he did through them. That's, 
That's the promise of Scripture. That's why we can have hope. Why can we have so much hope and even joy in the midst of those times that unbelievers can look at us and go, there's something. There's something there that I don't have. And that's the whole point. So next week we get to see the showdown, but this is the preparation for it. Glad y'all are here. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you uh, for who you are, for your power, and we believe in your wisdom. We trust, oh Lord, that you know far better than we what you're doing. Lord, I, I hope that nothing I said, I pray that nothing I said made anyone feel like I'm minimizing the pain they're going through because I know you don't, but I pray, oh Lord, that they would, through this study, through this passage, understand that um, you're able to redeem our pain and use it to make us holy and through our holiness to find true joy. I pray that you would increase that hope that we have in you, that trust, that faith that we have in you, and help us as a church to bear each other's burdens as we're called to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.